Hello humans, hello humans. It's the 20th of July. It's about 8.30, getting a late start, heading inland. Got a uh, meeting with some folks and gotta go do shopping. Yeah, shopping. Um, anyway, so we've been busy. Got a, uh, a lot of stuff done towards uh, sussing out uh, space alien material that's hidden in our ancient literature. So the premise is that the um, uh, what happened to the Torah slash Old Testament has also happened to other material in human history. And so there are some um, commonalities, or, or excuse me, there's some uh, patterns that we can use to extract from uh, how the Torah has been uh, handled and translated uh, that we can apply uh, as uh, search filters for other kinds of uh, texts and other other um, literature traditions. So these include the um, there's no attribution. So uh, nobody knows who wrote uh, the Torah, right? Uh, or the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, in the translations, there are uh, translations as though uh, specific scribes are named as authors, but it's all very vague. Uh, it's an, a later addition to the um, uh, uh, to the Bible in terms of translations. Um, it's one of the uh, apocryphal books where it's it's a secondhand information. And um, so, uh, so I don't accept it, really. It says, scribe so-and-so, but the so-and-so is actually a label uh, and is not a person's name. Um, let's see. So we like um, uh, the art of war, we say is written by uh, Sun Tzu, right? But the word Tzu means supreme. And so it's unlikely this guy was named supreme. It's an appellation applied to him as the supreme fellow who gave us this information, right? And so we see that with um, attribution, very few levels of attribution for the Torah. Nobody says, I wrote the whole thing. In fact, lots of people uh, I won't go into it, but but um, so there's no claim of having uh, uh, done this. Now, we find that is also part of the way in which the space aliens dealt with the humans. So in other liter literary traditions uh, with ancient literature, especially in the uh, throughout all of the Indian subcontinent and over into Asia, we find that there are uh, books that are written, uh, but the authors are uh, unknown, or what we have is um, several hundred years after the actual uh, authoring of the book itself. So in other words, uh, in Sanskrit, uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras are an instruction manual. Read one way, it appears to talk about meditation in these very vague terms that have been 
redefined over the centuries. Now, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, Patanjali, that's a that's a label, okay? That's Patan is a is a Pathan. It's an area of northern India. So Patanjali is Jolly from India, but Jolly is a title. It's not a name, okay? So it it's like um, most respected or um, uh, achieved, okay? So it's a sign of of uh, achievement. Um, so in that sense, you can say that someone had achieved their um, uh, a particular point in their life and they had reached it to where they had achieved this state of jolly, okay? Which was, I mean, way in the, way in back in, in ancient Sanskrit, this, as I say, was a term of respect. So it, it's like the respected one from uh, Patan or Pathan. Uh, area of India. So that's, that's, so Patanjali is not like a guy's name. Um, we take it that way. It's, it's been uh, put upon us that way for centuries. And we don't know who this fellow was, Patanjali. We have authors that uh, long after uh, that person's death uh, wrote stuff about him, but we have no way of knowing if any of the stuff that they wrote was in any way um, accurate, right? And so, um, or, you know, or could be applied. And so we have, um, we have these areas where, okay, so Patanjali's Yoga Sutras is a bunch of individual lines of instructions that if you read it uh, as though it's talking about the mind-machine interface, it is directly talking about that you can interpret it in a religious sense if you wanted to, in which it becomes very vague and less than focused. So um, I'm of the opinion that uh, uh, great religious leaders would not attempt to deceive nor to obscure information uh, through being vague or using vague terms. They would be quite precise in what they want to communicate because uh, like Bodhaharma and, and in Buddhism, they don't think they have anything really to teach. They're not there trying to sell you anything. They're not trying to put a, a, a naradigm on you. They want to be quite factual. So we see this in like um, modern day people like Buckminster Fuller, okay, where he labeled every damn paragraph and every paragraph was worked over until, and this is in the book Synergetics, until it was absolutely precise with no other words necessary nor added. And that's what we see with like Patanjali's uh, uh, Yoga Sutras. Now, Patanjali, they say, could have lived in the fourth century uh, BCE, right? So that would have been um, about 3,000 years ago. In that, in that range. But there's also, uh, but the Yoga Sutras that are being cited are referenced by people that are predating Patanjali's um, collection and discussion of them. Now, Patanjali's thing uh, was that he collected all the Yoga Sutras and um, uh, for commentary, okay? And so, um, so just as the Talmud is commentary on the Torah by a bunch of different authors in 63 books and then a bunch of attributions to other people that did not actually write in the books so that you got uh, out of the 63 volumes you may have several hundred individual minds that are uh, commenting on uh, elements in the Torah we see that there's lots of people 
over the course of time in India that have commented on the Yoga Sutras that Patanjali had collected. Okay, now the collection of the of the Yoga Sutras uh, goes back much further. The, the origination of them goes back much further than Patanjali, the supposed individual. And there's there's hints of Patanjali. The, okay, and so there's other books that were written by Patanjali that are, don't relate to yoga at all, and in fact come into um, uh, the whole thing about the space alien mind to machine interface at, a, at an oblique uh, way, but are in fact key to what we're looking at here. And so um, we find that that the attribution of Patanjali to the Yoga Sutras is, is you know, uh, just there because no one knew who uh, did the things, who wrote the things. And at some point somebody collected them and started putting them into a book and thereafter everybody started making comments on them, okay, to help you understand the, um, uh, the religious meditative nature of it, right? Well, what if it was not ever intended to be religious? Then you wouldn't need these comments saying, oh, this word needs to be interpreted that way in order for this to affect your yoga, okay? But what if, in fact, the yoga is the union with the mind-machine uh, interface and all of the descriptions of the uh, yoga sutras are how to keep yourself safe and how to effectively interface with this device? And then what will happen a, if you screw up or if you're successful? Okay, if you read it that way, it's a straightforward tech manual. It says, this is what you do. It is an instruction manual for this exact kind of a purpose. Um, if you read it as a religious text, as I say, it becomes a little vague. I mean, it discusses meditation, but not in the way that uh, the great Zen masters discussed meditation when they were quite explicit about everything that would happen. And there was no ambiguity. There was no, uh, it wasn't vague at all. Uh, it was it was precise, concrete, practical. All right, and so we see that in the Sanskrit literature, there's tons of practical literature about um, meditation. Right, very specific, very pointed, uh, precise. What each aspects of your body does, and so on. Uh, these these don't involve any vague word associations. Okay. And so uh, uh, they're quite precise in the sense that they say, if you arrange to do this with your eyes, crossing your eyes this particular way and holding this particular kind of a vision in terms of how you hold your eyes relative to what you're seeing, then the following things will occur in your brain and in your mind. Okay, and so these following things that they're describing go to how to interface with these machines. Now, bear in mind that the... Uh, at the time that, that these instructions were, were put down, the space aliens were telling us how to use their equipment and uh, because they needed more slaves, right? They came here, in, a, in my opinion, they came here in a depleted fashion. That is as though they had had a very long trip or had been harassed and had been worn down by some kind of an enemy on their way here. In any event, though, so... Um, uh, they set these instructions down for humans and basically it's like, okay, here's how you drive our cars. Okay, you sit yourself down, you do this, you do that, you know, you put your foot on the brake before you put the, push the start button, that kind of thing. 
very precise, uh, explicit, uh, practical descriptions. Okay, some of these go, as I say, there's vast quantities of literature about um, meditation practices. Now, these uh, meditation practices, these liter this literature describing the meditation practices in uh, Sanskrit are not vague at all. Okay, they're not at all vague. They're not trying to do um, uh, word reassignment the way that we see in um, uh, the commentaries on Patanjali Sutras or on other stuff. There's a lot of these books that are commentaries, okay? And so, uh, so I think that there's actually buried in uh, probably all literary traditions where there are pantheons of gods, okay? This does not occur where you don't have the pantheons. Uh, so we don't see this kind of thing with um, uh, far north peoples. Apparently the space aliens weren't cold hardy. And so they didn't like go and hang out with the Britons in cold, uh, wet Britain, right? They didn't go to Norway. Uh, we do see that there's uh, pantheons of gods relative to the northern peoples, but there's there's some major differences in terms of the um, how the um, uh, the gods um, interacted with the northern peoples, such that we see that this. Um, Mythology may, for them, be very much mythos and not actual reporting the way that we see with the Jews, where the Jews said, you know, so-and-so uh, archangel came and killed somebody, and uh, and so-and-so uh, uh, Colonel L. Yahweh, Colonel Yahweh of the L, uh, told everybody they got to kill their kids, right? He wants the, the baby fat out of the, the kids' abdomens to smoke. And so they've got to sacrifice their firstborn. And so we see these actual explicit descriptions of what the L were doing relative to the, um, the Essene population and the scribes that wrote this down in uh, what at that time was basically Canaanite or Proto-Hebrew. And so uh, in, the, in the Patanjali Sutras, which are part of a vast tradition of uh, descriptions and writings uh, that have been interpreted, in my opinion, wrongly as being directly focused on meditation for uh, enlightenment. And so uh, if you're a meditator and you're way into this stuff, you see that you run into these ideas of uh, that are described as samadhi, as moksha, uh, basically, they're talking about enlightenment and so on. But if you look into the words themselves, you find that a lot of these words are very accurately applied to dealing with a mind-to-machine interface. So the, there's a lot of descriptions about the idea of uh, moiksha or moksha, which is the idea of release. Okay, and so the meditators interpret this in a way that is not enlightenment. Okay, it is the release of your cares, your your striving, your the release of the um, the tension of being alive relative to this idea of seeking enlightenment. Okay, that's <coughs> as I say, it's it really vague and all of that. But if you actually get into the the literature in which these words appear and keep going further and further back and so on, you find these words being used, like where it says in some of these. Uh, it says, if you achieve this mindset with the machine uh, interface, then uh, this is how you get released from it. This is how you uh, release yourself. 
And this is important because these mind-to-machine interfaces are, and they're very deeply described in Sanskrit. I've found a whole treasure trove of um, material going into how these machines affect your mind and, and this kind of thing and what it is like as an experience to interact with these machines. So now, <coughs> these things are described as like... Um, Mm. It's like swirly things that take over your mind. Okay, so so it's very appropriate, and there's even discussions in some Sanskrit and Pali uh, languages uh, about the um, the interaction at that level and and how it. It, it is visually, when you first interconnect, you're presented with a vortex, and then uh, visually you get an impression of a vortex, but then when you get into it, you fall into the, uh, the swirling bit, and they call that the maelstrom, okay? Uh, it's also described as the whirlpool, and the whirlpool exists at the center of the vortex, and once you connect to the uh, mind-machine interface, the point is to move your mind down to where it goes into the whirlpool, and that's where, and then it goes into, okay, and that's where you can apply your mental energy to make things happen, okay, with the machine, uh, levitation or whatever. And then there's lots and lots and lots of discussion on what to think, how to think it, such that these machines behave themselves. So you have to understand that the reason we think of the um, uh, that these instructions are for meditation is because so much of these instruction sets are going to the idea of internal mental control. But it's not internal mental control such that you have a happy life or that you um, uh, become enlightened or something like this, right? Again, a very vague phrase. What is enlightenment? How does it affect your body? How does it affect your, your mind? How would you know if you were enlightened? Okay, so if you get into the language, you see that they're not talking really about that. And so that uh, it, it all goes to the idea of uh, affecting the power of the machine through this interface with the power of your mind. And so the, it can be seen, obviously, that if you have a scattered mind, you're going to have real problems controlling these machineries. And so if you're, you're just cruising along, you finally get the Vaimana to, you know, which is, a, it's a stone device, you know, massively heavy, 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 tons, five-story, um, you know, stone pyramid kind of like building, and it flies. And, uh, and you're the, the pilot there. Well, you, um, you connect with the machine, you go to the vortex, uh, you decide... Uh, and I won't go into the details there, but you decide which half of the vortex you're going to um, assume, uh, put on the whirlpool, dive into the whirlpool from. And there's reasons to choose one over the other depending on what's going on. Uh, and then you get in there and you're in the whirlpool and then so your mind has melded with this interface. And that's when it becomes really fucking dangerous. Because if you start thinking of, you know, a Simpsons episode, who the fuck knows what's going to happen? because that device doesn't understand the Simpsons episode, but because of the nature of that part of your mind that does the work interacting with the device, um, casual kind of um, 
uh, imaginings, fantasy, uh, you know, musings, all of these kind of things can get your ass into real trouble. Now, these devices are dangerous. Okay, so you could see that if you were just randomly thinking about shit and, you know, uh, happen to think about a video game you've been playing while you were driving the Vimana, well, that ain't gonna do too well because you're not driving it with your hands, you're driving it with your mind through your body. Um, so, so things get real complicated here, right? And, and um, it can be seen that uh, in attention and a casual attention to your surroundings is not good. And so not everybody was going to be a good Vimana driver. And we also, there's literature out there that uh, if you go into it, you see that women can't do this, okay? Women are, there are some exceptions. There are some notable exceptions where they talk about specific women and some of these things, uh, some of this literature that actually were able to achieve um, good use of these interfaces. But it was relatively rare, and it has to do with the fact that the the brain and the mind of men and women are not the same, okay? Just as our pelvis is not the same, and that, you know, females have a pelvis that can uh, pass the head of a baby, but men do not, there are physical, um, non-addressable mental thing, mind things, like physical things to your brain that also affect your mind that prevent women from running these machines. Um, I don't know that it, if they could in terms of could you alter the machine to accept a female? I don't know. See, there's, there's, I haven't run across anything at this point that describes any of that. There's all kinds of literature that if you, you know, run through and retranslate it and get all of the the goofy commentary shit out of the way and look at the exact language, uh, it's very precise in what it says here. And and so they were, the, there are warnings that says, you know, don't let people from this particular tribe, don't let men from this particular tribe use these devices because this tribe uh, practices circumcision, okay? And there's another tribe uh, that did not practice circumcision, but did practice this um, uh, body alteration, uh, surgical kind of a thing uh, at a very young age that also caused these people, the men in that tribe, to not be able to use these devices, and that it was actually dangerous, and that uh, both to the, to the people and to the device. Uh, lots of information or lots of warnings about the danger to the device and lots of warnings about the danger to individual people who should not uh, attempt to do this. Uh, and then also warnings about nobody should attempt to do this without adequate training and that here's how you go about getting the training. Much of those books we've misinterpreted as manuals on meditative techniques. So, <laughs> so there's a real kick in the pants. Also, the... Uh, the you will uh, at some point it'll come on out uh, all of the details here, but you will be astounded at how much of this stuff was just like staring us in the face. We just didn't see it, right? Man sees what he wants to see and disregards the rest. Um. So uh, we have all kinds of language about the the mental. Um, uh, conditions and things that occur when you join to the machine so that you are prepared. And a lot of this actually, when you uh, read, read it, you see that there are similar 
experiences in dealing with the whirlpool, dealing with the maelstrom, both of which are words that they actually use in ancient Sanskrit to describe the interaction of people with these devices. Uh, if you just read it directly, if you, if you take out any kind of commentary or any kind of translation that makes it go to meditation, you know, in a religious sense, um, then you see that it's actually techniques on how to harden your mind so that you can get up and control these devices and not, uh, you know, uh, spaz out and crash the bugger into the ground. Because you happen to, you know, be thinking about a woman or, you know, a, 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 a meal or a sports thing when you should have been thinking about your driving. Um, it's really tricky, guys. Uh, the, the warnings here are quite extensive. Uh, also, I found a huge uh, repository of commands. Okay, and there's a lot of fucking discussion, like big, dense volumes. Um, okay, so Sanskrit is very... Um, a very rich language. It's very dense in meaning for very few characters. Uh, it has a, uh, a, a a literary tradition in modern Sanskrit, which is to say, from the last Kali Yuga. So the so uh, from um, say 100 AD, 100 current era. Maybe let's just say year zero, right? Uh, so from this current era onward, so for the last uh, 2,023 years, Sanskrit has a tradition where they would uh, have these in very specific, precise Sanskrit statements, uh, very word-sparing, right? No extra words, very, very precise, and no extra... Uh, hemming and hawing around in order to communicate the idea. It was, it was just a very few specific words. And so Sanskrit at that, that level is written in this very sparing way for words. And then you get all the uh, volume of people making all the commentaries trying to make sense of this shit, right? That's why there's all this language written about, I mean, all these people writing books about uh, the Bible and the Torah. There's 63 volumes in the in one set of Talmud books uh, that go to uh, aspects of the Torah that are commentary on the Torah, and there's another 75, I think, uh, that are commentaries on uh, the Babylonian Torah. Okay, there's differences, um, but in any event, it comes down to this basic idea. You know, mm, hey, your God's so um, imprecise in talking to you, that uh, you need vast quantities of, of other people's words to try and understand, it's like, that sort of doesn't make sense, right? If your gods of any, if your gods are of any acumen at all, if they know what the fuck they're doing, they will use very few words to communicate what they need. And you're not going to need uh, lots and lots and lots and lots of people to make interpretations over the centuries to try and make sense of this shit. So why is God so obtuse as to provide you with something that doesn't make sense uh, initially, right off the bat? Uh, anyway, so side, side issue. Anyway, so we found these um, books that go to uh, um, discussions uh, about the rules of the operation. I've also found a lot of tradition, a lot of books within that tradition and within uh, spread out 
uh, over centuries, um, very ancient uh, books, you know, uh, spread out over, written over centuries, but um, written thousands of years before our current time. And these books have uh, discussions at an academic level about the process of interacting with the machinery and why certain things work and why certain things don't and um, uh, how to train your mind to actually make the connection uh, without getting swallowed up and lost in it. And it just goes on and on and on. It's all very practical stuff. And it is as though we had a uh, you know, technical college somewhere that uh, explored the machinery and stuff from a human viewpoint in order to make humans better at it. And uh, they, they sussed out a lot of stuff that the space aliens didn't tell us directly when they introduced to the, us to the machinery, probably because they didn't think it was pertinent to us. And all they wanted to do was to say, sit here, put your hand there, you know, put your foot on this before you push this button. Once you push this button, this happens, yada, 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 right? And so um, we see all of these kinds of discussions there. Within this body of, of um, discussions about the interaction of humans and these machinery, as I say, are all these cautions about people that should not be involved. So, you know, don't let a woman do it. And, you know, uh, don't let a woman under any circumstances interact with this ancillary part of the field. Uh, it's all about these field units and so on. But it also talks about... Um, you can't do this if you are a circumcised male. Or rather, okay, so it may be impossible for you as a circumcised male uh, if you were circumcised at a young enough age uh, because it will have affected that part of your mind, easily identified that it's got names and so on. Um, it, it will affect that part of your mind, the circumcision, because it affects your brain in terms of how it matures. And in fact, there are um, lines in there that are from uh, cautions to this or, or instructions to the space aliens saying, hey, if you want to keep your slaves under control, circumcise them. They won't be able to use this machinery. They can't escape. Um, you know, because you can't leave the guns, you couldn't leave the magnetic bubble without knowing how to interact with the uh, control unit. Um, and so, uh, so they, they were saying, you know, if you want to have maximum effect, you want to circumcise uh, the child before they're 13. Maximum effect is circumcising shortly after birth. Or if you want to do this other operations shortly after birth, this works as well. But on some people, it doesn't, some types of humans, it doesn't work as well as on others. And so we get this whole thing, right? And we, um, the circumcision aspect of it has to do with the hormonal control or the, the hormones that are, uh, that come on the male body over time, um, through maturation into puberty and that these, uh, pubescent hormones cause the maturation of this part of your mind that allows you to connect to these machines, if you don't have this part of your mind mature, you, at best you'll have a tentative, uh, you know, uh, bad connection, but um, uh, it will be bad for everybody because you won't have control, right? And so it'd be like you'd be, you, you know, you're, you're old enough to get in the car and turn on the, the thing and grab the steering wheel, but you can't reach the brakes. Uh, that sort of a deal, right? So this is the kind of thing that they're, uh, they're saying you got to watch out for. And um, 
these discussions go to the idea that uh, certain kinds of wounds that would happen to uh, men in battle would make it such that you're not a good candidate to operate these machines. Um, and there's a long list of them. And so there's this list of cautions uh, found in this uh, manual of the command and control instructions in in the um, uh, of these devices that give you hints as and not hints. I mean, they explicitly say, you know, uh, you don't want these kind of people using these things, right? And we find that um, that they're they're very specific. Uh, we have to now figure out what their words for these kind of people meant. So we have a label, we have a uh, a name in Sanskrit, but we don't know if that means Samoan, we don't know if it means Aztec, we don't know if it means white guy, we just don't know what this word refers to. It's a label, it's not um, uh, a defined term that has a translation. But there's lists of these peoples, various different tribes from the space aliens viewpoint that you don't want to involve yourself with in terms of these devices because of genetics or whatever the fuck. So this is all quite complex and we've only scratched the surface and we've only done it in this one language. I have a couple of people helping me, but I'm mainly doing it on my own um, and using uh, some AI assistance on it. It's a real pain in the ass to use chat GPT because the thing is woke and that causes you some real serious issues. Um, Anyway, though, so, uh, as I say, quite fascinating, the interaction with this machinery. This would really help if, um, uh, this would really help the people, the people that are working for um, Elon Musk on the um, chip in the brain, on the fried, uh, brain fried chips, right? Or chip fried brains. Um, uh, because you understand that you don't have to have chips in the brain to interact with the human mind and that it's actually relatively straightforward if one understands the biodynamics that relate the brain to the mind for humans, which is discussed in these volumes. Now, um, so I haven't read these books, okay? Some of these books are uh, two and 3,000 pages uh, long and they may be fragmentary. Uh, so there's a, uh, just as we know, there's a big introduction uh, to Patanjali's uh, Yoga Sutras that if you read the book as a technical manual for interacting with these machines, uh, then you see that there's a big introduction that's missing, that we're looking at fragmentary ma material. We knew that the yoga material was fragmentary, but we didn't know how, um, uh, how much is missing uh, because we weren't looking at it as a a realistic subject, we were taking it in a religious bent. Now, it is my opinion uh, that we take these things in the religious bent through the Kali Yuga because of the nature of the Kali Yuga and its effect on the human mind. Uh, because we're so far from the uh, emanations from the galactic center that we're in a denser, um, more stupid state, right? And so, uh, all of the people that do get into yoga, they know the, what the word yoga means, okay? And, but they never think about it. And when they do think about it, they think about it in a religious bent. But the word yoga means union, okay? And so a joining, a melding, a union, specifically a union. 
Uh, and it means union because we were unified. We were melded to those machines when you attached yourself. So whatever the fuck happens to that machine happens to your mind and vice versa. And so, um, uh, the machine can kill you just as you could kill the machine with your inappropriate uh, mental musing, that sort of thing. If you do it wrong, the machine will kill you or it will mess your mind up forever. Um, and thus, all of the cautions in this. This is not for, for kids. It's not a toy. All right. So, but we, we took that word union and everybody says, oh, you know, union with the divine, union with God, you know, union with your deeper self or union with your soul and so on. Um, and, you know, it's, it's bogus. It was right in front of our face and we never even saw it. It's all about union with the machine. It's all about the maelstrom, the whirlpool. And it is named that way specifically. So the space aliens in their, in their instructions to us call it the vortex. Further down in there, um, in some of the instructions, they acknowledge there's a split and there's, um, the vortexes can be seen from one direction or from another as you enter in these machines. It is at that point that when humans take over, they liken it to the whirlpool. And you'll see that word appearing occasionally when humans have written about the experience of using these devices. They don't call it the vortex or the toroid. They call it the whirlpool because that's the experience. That's the effect. When you plunge into it, it is literally a plunging. It is, it is as though you have a body and you're diving into a, a whirlpool, a uh, fantastically spinning whirlpool that will respond to you. And so if you're all freaked out, it's going to get freaked out. But if you're calm, if you've done these techniques, if you know how to control your mind, it's calm. It will obey you. And that's really the, you know, the secret in plain sight relative to this. So it's good that we got do people doing yoga, but they're doing it stretching themselves, stretching their bodies, but not understanding the reason that we were instructed to do this was its effect on our minds. And the goal is to, to work the mind to have union with these devices. Okay. And of course the devices were seen as divine. So across the centuries of decreasing emanations from galactic center, as humans become born more and more dense with each generation, as we're stupider for a long period of time for each, with each generation, we lose the sense of that connection to the machinery and just eliminate that in our language. And we just talk about being able to connect to the divine, the gods, right? And so, so it's a, a you know, it's humans doing human shit, misunderstanding. Anyway, guys, got to get stuff done. Talk to you later.